Now entering Nerdist.com. You made it weird. You made it weird. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird. You made it weird. Yes, you did. You made it weird. Oh, yeah. You made it weird with Pete Holmes. Yes, you did. You made it weird. Jesus. <laughs> it's like stand-up. There's no natural way to start. Yeah. Except just saying, hey, welcome to uh, You Made It Weird. This is uh, the third episode ever, and I'm very excited to have Dimitri Martin. Thanks for having me. Oh, God. Rule of three. This is great. It is we, kind of the big one. Yeah, this is a good one to be on. If it were baseball, you'd be like the cleanup guy. Totally. We have two men on. We got Kumail on, and TJ is on third. How did TJ pass Kumail, who is first? Kumail's on third, right. TJ's on second, and now you're up. Great. All right. No pressure. That did feel like pressure. I'm from the town that had the Little League World Champions in 1998. So Is that true? I'm kind of equipped. Yeah. What town? Tom's River, New Jersey. And what was the name of the team? I think the Tom's River, New Jersey Little League Association. That can't be right. <laughs> there had to be something. The no, Tomahawks? Be- no, because the way they do it, I think, is they get kind of an all-star roster of the various teams in that Little League Domain. Oh, so you, you know were I mean? on another team and then you were drafted onto this team? I wasn't on it. I just I'm just from that town. Oh, I <laughs> you're you're just boasting that you. That's come my from... town's credit. That's all we have. I think. Yeah. And now Jersey Shore is the that's the neighboring town. Oh, that's so... right. I remember hearing that that you yeah. uh, grew up where Jersey Shore happens. Yeah, you're not a very Jersey Shore person, though. Thank you. Okay, I actually I'll start by saying this is that we met like. I think like eight years ago. That sounds do you, right. Do you remember? Because yeah. it was a really big deal for me. I started, I was in, uh, I grew up in Boston, but I started in Chicago. Then I moved to New York. I was a big fan of yours. I still am a fan of yours, of course. And uh, I was barking at the Boston. Which I also had done. See, yeah. yeah for those uh, that don't know, barking means handing out flyers in exchange for stage time at like one thirty in the morning for the remaining five people yeah. who are tricked into staying. And when <laughs> I used to hand out flyers, one of the things that I told myself to like get through it, it was like January. It was horrible. Was I was like, it's okay, Dimitri did this too, because you were kind of like <laughs> a guy. Funny. You were a guy. You're still a guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like at that point, when you're starting right. out, you have your guys, and I was like, it's yeah, because okay. I think I that was on West Third Street. Yeah. And that club is no longer there right now. It's a rest. It's a bar restaurant, I think. You know, I walked down the street recently, and I didn't even it's, recognize yeah, the it. Yeah, the facade's all different. It's co- totally. But gone. Uh, yeah, I think when I met you, I might have done my Comedy Central presents. So yes. I had s- some sort of a television credit yeah. where you would have known me from that. So, oh, I yeah, did yeah, know yeah, you from this, that. You, had, you did a half hour, and then we talked about that a little bit. We did. Yeah. God, it was, it, this is a little embarrassing, but it was such a big deal that the, uh, I, was, I was married at the time, and I wrote a note in newspaper form mm. that said, Pete met Dimitri Martin. Nice. And, uh, it, and I wrote a little story about it. I'm flattered. Thanks. I, I know. <laughs> I'm, I, you're flattered. I'm embarrassed. That's a very embarrassing nah. story. But like, she knew that that was a big deal. She was actually watching your presents in Lexington, where I grew up, Massachusetts, and I was in the room, and I actually lost bits watching your special, mm. which is weird because our our styles aren't right. that similar. But like right. certain premises, certain premises, covered, yes. And it didn't it didn't anger me. It was it was. I'm being honest here. I honestly it was like, oh, here's a guy on TV telling jokes, kind of like me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe I could get on TV. Yeah, yeah. There's an affirmation there where you think, yeah. okay, this is pretty much the same. I'm in the same circle of exactly Venn diagram people. I think the joke was uh, about running shoes. I had a joke where I said, um, I wear running shoes. I don't run, but I like to have the option, mm. which is, it's kind of like a, a you joke. Yeah. You could say a joke like that. I think so. Yeah. And I think maybe you had the flip flop joke or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. That was, I used to like telling that joke. 
yeah. my flip flop joke. Yeah, it was about. I think wearing flip flops is like saying, uh, "I hope I don't get chased today." Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's similar to your <laughs> pants joke. Another joke that sticks out in my mind. Where, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I tipped I tip the, the bet. Swimming, yeah, yeah, I tipped the bet. Yeah, that was a joke. I like years. Somebody told me there. I've had this several times. I don't know George Carlin's work well enough. Yeah. I know some of the greatest hits of Carlin. My father was a George Carlin fan. Mine too. And I love George Carlin from a distance. I have a lot of respect for him, but I don't, I don't know his whole body of work, but I've had people tell me, Oh, one time I had a joke about how it was really hard to throw out a garbage can. <laughs> Someone's like, that's a George Carlin joke. I was like, all right, fair enough. I won't Did, tell that joke. You know? Do you take the affirmation from it? You're kind of like, Oh, I wrote a George Carlin joke independently. Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I, I think it's it's still like a, a thrill and a compliment. I think it's weird in this era now. When I started, and I'd say when you started, YouTube and the body of work that has come with it, the vast access of this giant video library now, yeah, it didn't exist. So you didn't know if you were doing somebody else's bit, and you still don't now, but right. now there's this weird... You could type in the words of the premise of the bit into YouTube and maybe yeah. you'll find some guy you in could North sp- Carolina. Yeah, you could spend several months trying to get yourself up to date with all of the comedy that's available <laughs> on the internet to yeah. make sure that you don't have a joke or a premise that's the same as somebody. It starts. It's a weird thought experiment because it starts to get ridiculous. It'll drive you crazy. I think so, yeah. And it's I, it seems tricky because we make stuff for other people to listen to and consume. So I guess we wanted them to relate to us enough right? where... There's a tension on the one hand, right? You're trying to go out as far as you can and be as individual and personal and specific. Right. But on the other, I want someone to understand what I'm talking about. So yeah. you end up with observational – a lot of us end up with observational comedy because it's shared human experience. And yep. how much does that really change, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, felt, I felt the same way about Seinfeld too. Seinfeld was a big premise ruiner the more, oh, yeah. I, the more I delved into him. And stuff also from his show, which I realized yeah. now knowing a little bit more about TV writing, I thought I was like, oh, Seinfeld wrote this. You know, oh, okay. his, his staff right. wrote it or whatever. He was probably a part of it. But there was a joke I had about a marathon isn't a race. It's just uh, after somebody wins, it's just a parade of losers. Oh, yeah, that's good. I, and the, I, again, kind of a Dimitri joke. Yeah. I, I, I I've, like, ri- I've written the same. I don't think I ever told my version of that joke but similar idea see what are you gonna do if you take the topic and i kind of think this is how you work in fact that's actually the first weird thing i was going to ask you Mm -hmm. about for those of you who don't know the premise of the show i ask weird things that i think are something that's weird about the guests and uh the first weird thing is your work ethic and the way that you work yeah and and i'm somewhat similar i one time went to a museum deliberately to write yeah 15 minutes about the museum yeah and i did and it boiled down to about four minutes nice but like i know that you do that and when you're but to finish my first thought is when you look at the museum there's only so many jokes you can make yeah and on seinfeld he was like uh his joke on the show was they're like you want to watch the marathon he's like what's to watch a guy from nigeria a woman from russia and five thousand losers wow. and i was like ah mine's better right you ever right, have right. that i was like yeah. parade of losers is funnier yeah because i'm commenting you sure, know what sure. i mean i'm adding a little color uh all respect to seinfeld <laughs> but um your your pre- uh, when i've talked to you about how you write you do seem to do something that a lot of comedians don't do which is you do you're deliberate yeah you yeah i think i think it's always a, a trick of sorry go ahead no no please I was going to say, for me, it's always a trick of, um, you know, I guess playing with like the time that I have to work and then where I'm at and then what I'm trying to perceive, you know, like the layers, I guess, like at a museum, there's a very literal, direct 
experiential level of I'm in a museum, yeah. someone who's a museum goer right now. What are jokes <laughs> about being someone who's in a museum? Right. But then there are jokes just about statues. There's jokes about stone. Right. There's jokes about carving stone. Air. Yeah, there's jokes about air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. There's jokes about the Security wallpaper. Guard. So there's like a, a kind of fun, I guess, unraveling and deconstruction. And here, I mean, I'm just talking about one possible game, you know. For yeah. me, I found that as a person, even before being a comedian, I respond to games for whatever reason. I respond to, you know, some set of rules, some shared assumptions, and some sort of an endpoint out of it. Like, play as long as you can in there and then get out. Right. Um, so they're like, yeah, as much as that translates into like creative thinking, then maybe I get jokes out of that kind of a thing. Well, that's, that's what I remember you telling me. And this probably was seven years ago. And I, and I was like, I don't know. You were very generous. I'd like to compliment you on Thanks. being generous to a uh, guy handing out flyers in, yeah. in the cold. And you were very kind. Pretty and you, much the same as me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But not everybody remembers that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it, do, it takes effort to be like, oh no, this guy is me. Yeah, I think, I think, ago. and we, we both. You know, I started in New York. You had done some in Chicago before New York. Yeah. But you spent a lot of time in New York. Mm-hmm. I loved a lot of the comedians I met there, and I still do. Um, I like being part of the community as much as I am, but it's not per se the most nurturing or mentoring yeah. kind of community to end well, up especially in. Especially you know the mean? Boston. Yeah. The Boston like, was brutal. Yeah. When I started, a lot of guys just kind of look at me like, oh, you. I remember. What does this guy want? You know. Well, Mulaney was telling me that like Colin Quinn of all uh, of all people who I know loves Mulaney yeah. is like at the cellar they'll break his balls and be like, "What are you? You going to do some of your UCB uh, improvs up there? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I, I get it. it you're, yeah. you're kind of like outside of the norm. Yeah. But, and Boston made the, the Boston. This is what we call the club. Made me feel out of the place. And not not to be weird, you actually didn't do well, which was. It was oh, like yeah. it was it, that was ministry to me. Oh, it was yeah, amazing yeah. to watch you, a hero of mine, <laughs> not do well where I didn't do well seven uh, nights a week. That's funny. Yeah, like I, <laughs> I feel like it's it's, such, it's so enjoyable to have a good set, but I think what's more enjoyable is to have you know something new work, to right. have some feeling of progress and development, right. You know, in your craft or whatever That's so you consider it to be, you know, that to me is probably more of the trip. That's so much so, more of a thrill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you do a set and you kill for 45 minutes and the 44th minute you try a new thing and it doesn't work, I've seen comedians get off stage and just be completely devastated. Yeah, it's, it's not that fun. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> and so some people, of course, they do the same 20 minutes. And again, before YouTube, you could do this a lot easier, but they right. could do the same time, same set over and over and kill with all these different audiences. And there's that satisfaction of, wow. Yeah. You know, I, I'm doing really well here. But. I think this is why we're fostering the the kind of Louis C.K. model of the new hour. They're constantly yeah. pushing forward. I kind of think of like your comedy as a river, always moving, always moving forward, trying to keep it moving forward, trying to yeah. generate new stuff. Very dangerous. What do you mean? Well, rivers can be dangerous. <laughs> Especially if you wake up and you're wearing pants. <laughs> yeah. That called back 20 minutes later. Nice. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. But the thing, this is, this is a long way to say, the thing that you told me, speaking of games and how your brain works and the first weird thing, is you told me that you would sit down and you would write for an hour and your alarm would go off. And then if you were writing stand-up and you were going to continue writing stand-up, you had to continue to write for another hour. Yeah, but it was 20 minutes. I think oh, I could 20. never do it for an hour. So I still do that. Now I try to write a screenplay. I'm trying to write a book. I'm still trying to write stand-up. I'm drawing for a book. I mean, this book of drawings. So it's the same thing. It'd just be different categories. You're doing a me. book of drawings? Yeah. And okay. it's it's like, I don't know how many drawings it'll be, but it's, you know, it could be 300 drawings or 200 or something like right. that. 
just one per page, you know, just like line drawing. That's so funny because one time at the now also closed Rafifi, I remember we were talking about cartooning and I've had some cartoons yeah. in the New Yorker and that sort of stuff. And we were both talking about how some jokes, yeah. I, I, we talk about, I, I rip this thought off from our conversation. We came up with it together. I say this all the time. You have to respect what a joke is. Some yeah. jokes are screenplays. Yeah. Some jokes are stand up. Yeah. Some jokes are cartoons. Some of them are just things you say in conversation to impress sure. girls. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whatever the, whatever the <laughs> I, best form is. Identify what it is. And, yeah. and the fact that that's one of the things I love about you is you draw the cartoons, you do songs or whatever you need to yeah. do. To, to let the joke be what it wants to be. I think so. I think if you can let the, uh, I guess the, the form dictate the content, that, that's a pretty fun game. We have a pretty unstructured job, all of us here. Yeah. And you can make a lot of money or no money, <laughs> usually no money. And then maybe you get a little window where people will pay to see you. Or right. And I don't know what it can lead to. You know, hopefully it leads to money for a long enough time that you get to have this creative life, you know, all that stuff. But, Along the way, it does seem that if you can, I guess, find a way to work in as many forms as possible, yeah, then you're kind of planting several different crops. I think of it know? as a harvest all the time. Yeah. It's, it's very bizarre that you say that because I'm always like, it's either planting or harvesting. Harvesting's yeah. better. It yeah. feels it feels better to harvest. Yeah. But then planting is also good. But like the more, I, this is what I think about all the time. It's like the more things you can do. Uh, and they're all under the umbrella of comedy, the better. So yeah. I think that's very interesting that you do the book. When I, um, the second book. Yeah, it's cool. I'm going to do, uh, this first book I did, uh, came out this past spring. This is a book. It's called, this is a book. And <laughs> it's just, you know, kind of a grab bag, right? There's some, a couple short stories in there, drawings, right. Uh, one liners in different forms and stuff sold enough. So I'm excited. So Great. they gave me a deal to do another book of essays and those kinds of things. And I said, thank you. I'm excited. I'd love to. Can I, if you give me a little more money, I'll give you two books. <laughs> and the next one will be just drawings. Cause I have hundreds of drawings that I've done that yeah. I've never used for anything. And I just think it would be a fun form just God, to have that's... a kind of a joke per page. And mine aren't really New Yorker cartoons there. Some of them maybe could be, but a lot of them are very, I think they could be I very think you, simple. You very could have few lines, you know? Well, I remember one that you, I, I've seen some of your cartoons where it's a, a box and it's a road and there's a road sign that says Ted two miles. Yeah. And then in the distance, you can just see a tiny a little, little guy. guy. Yeah. Just stuff like I that. I think it might be one mile. Is it one mile? I think it. I think it might have been two miles. <laughs> well, whatever I thought the visibility could be, because <laughs> you want them to be as small as it can be, but you want it to be believable. To, that's yeah. the distance you're looking at. Yeah, I don't know. I like I like the gestalt that you get with a good joke and uh, maybe with a good cartoon. Too. Yeah, you know, there's a just that moment where there's a reveal. Well, you had the Where's Waldo one too. I'm yeah. sorry. I, I hope I'm not freaking you out with my no, uh, memory. No, this, no, these are, that, that was one I put in my special. The Dimitri Martin person, I think. I think that one's in there where it's the sharks and it says, Where's Waldo? Oh, really? Because three sharks. When we were talking about the cartoons all those years ago, you were telling me about that one. And I, I la- it was a laugh out loud joke. The, yeah. the caption is, Where's Waldo? And it's just a bunch of sharks yeah, and just... some shards of Waldo. Yeah. Which I think is very, very <laughs> funny. Um, but I, I, this is, again, a long way to go. I didn't think you finished the thing about you would write for 20 minutes about stand up. So what I do, yeah. So now what I find is, you know, if. I'm traveling, then that's going to really affect the schedule of the day because I have to wake up and go to the airport, set on an airplane, go check in here, do the sound check, whatever it is. But if we just took an average day for me living in my neighborhood, then yeah, it's weird. I have to be very self-disciplined like a lot of us. So you set up a schedule. I try to. You know, I, I, I have goals that are all 
time based. They're like cumulative time goals. So it's just if I can get three hours of writing in a day. Yeah. In 20 minute chunks. See, that's two hours and 55 minutes more than most comedians. Well, and, and the truth is it's about two hours more than I can ever really do. I can't, I just have a lot of trouble. I think it's nice amongst some of the other comedians and friends that I have people give me the credit for being a disciplined person. (laughs) I wish I were as disciplined as some of the folks perceive me to be. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm always thinking about story ideas and movie ideas and characters and essays for books and drawings and whatever this could be. Does this form work? What about that? Right. I play I play music a lot before I go to sleep, just with GarageBand, you know, like just fiddling yeah. around. But doing that over the years was really helpful when I had important things because I didn't know I'd have some sketch show or anything. But then I got to use my own music, so now I get paid right very small amounts of money. But it's still such symbolically such an exciting thing to get the little check like I'm a composer yeah. for like a 15 second little thing I've I did with my guitar. Yeah, you know, it's kind of nice on on uh, the TV shows that I've written for. If I ever have a character sing or something. Uh, on, on, cool. the sh- on the show Outsource, I had a character sing a lullaby nice. where he says, go to sleep, go to sleep, sweet, uh, little Linda, lay your head on a cloud. And I had to register that song that's awesome. with the music people. And I, I know that satisfaction. And I called the song, go to sleep, sweet little Linda parentheses, lay your head on a cloud. Nice. So the title of the <laughs> song was the entire song, <laughs> which I thought was just such a funny, cool. absurd gag, but I know what you're talking about. You get che- a check for like 25 cents yeah. and you're like, fuck yeah, I'm a musician. Uh, that counts. You Rack give it me, up. Yeah, you give me cash for my song. But so, if you think of this kind of spread of goals or things that you want to work on, yeah. activities, whatever you want to call them, yeah, then it's time management. So, I have to be, I have to be on myself and say, all right, you gotta, you want to write a screenplay, you have to, you have to forget about the goal, the long term thing of like a finished script, and think about twenty minutes. Just try to write for twenty minutes. Yeah hard i have trouble with it that's really interesting i I think about that sort of stuff a lot i'm kind of one of those self-helpy sort of people that loves setting goals i love trying to be like even if it's just kind of like i actually just set this one where i was like i need to do an hour a day where i watch my own stand-up because i tape a lot of my stuff never watch it and when i do watch it i get the feeling where i'm like i'm this guy i know that sounds big-headed but i'm like Almost like I kind of don't feel like I, I am the person I'm watching. Yeah. And that I get to rip him off and no one will know. That's funny. Because I look exactly like him. That's funny because <laughs> John Stewart told me once in the edit, in the first season of Important Things, we're sitting there looking at something. He didn't come by often, but he was a producer on that show. Oh, really? Yeah, he would get Oh, I didn't know he did that. That's great. And he said something very similar to what you're saying. There's some John Stewart fans outside. I yeah, we're we're recording right above uh, Meltdown, so which is a comedy show in L.A. every Wednesday at the Nerdist Theater. So there's a big uh, line of comedy nerds that are losing their shit for some reason. So because comic book stores often get very loud, so <laughs> there's a Magic the Gathering game that's just bubbling. People are freaking out. But John said something very similar to what you said once. He said, "I was like, I don't know about this thing right what I'm doing on stage there. You know, for this thing I wanted to edit or something." He's like. He said, you're going to learn quickly that that's not you. Oh, really? Yeah, that's not you anymore. Like, you is in the edit here. That's like, this is <laughs> footage, you know. Like, you're identifying like, where you are in it. I think so, yeah. He was basically saying this, you have to kind of bring a new set of eyes to this. Well, when Not you, be so wrapped up into it. When you hear about divas or whatever, uh, and I'm not saying John Stewart's a diva, but I'm sure he knows exactly how he comes across. Yeah, like he's from smart. My time on The Daily Show, I, I, I did a... Uh, 
I guess you'd call it warm up. I basically opened doing stand up, uh, which was a great privilege, and watching them do the rehearsal and watching him yeah. like change it. And actually, I did warm up for your show yeah. very similarly. That was very watch. different than the Daily Show. It was, very, was more of a shitstorm. <laughs> Why? What are we doing? I love it. Very I, last minute person. <laughs> well, that's actually another weird part of your process. You do everything yourself. It's kind of going through yeah. this. Uh, I don't know this uh, lens. That's you. Yeah. Every, so there's all this material. Yeah. You had wonderful writers yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, I think you knew and had an understanding that you're like, this is me. This is. I'm yeah. representing me and I'm trying to make everything that we're writing and everything that we're doing and all the sketches that we do through the lens of who I am. Yeah, I think it's a survival instinct. And I think if I ever get to do a show again, I'll do a couple things different. And one of them would be I wouldn't do a show in which I'm playing myself as myself. Interesting. Because I think that's what yielded a lot of that for me was... Well, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, there's just a fear. You it's not even you want excellence or perfection or anything. You want accuracy. I think you're just like, well, geez, I'm, I didn't even realize this, but I just got into this deal where I'm selling myself. Right. Like I've been alive for X number of years and I got to own my identity. <laughs> and now all of a sudden I co-own it with a corporation. Yes. Who's putting it on television and they have, and they have the money and they own it kind of more than I do. Yeah. So I better be really careful with it because when it goes to shit, yeah. Um, they go on to the next identity, but I'm stuck with this one. I walk away like, oh, and people are like, you're the guy. You yeah, know, you're, you're the that shitty owner. guy from that. Yeah. I'm like, no, but that's not, you know, in the edit, no, no, it doesn't matter. We don't care. You're the, you're that asshole. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, right. So well, that's, I really do think that was, became easier and easier to articulate to myself that that was a generator for a lot of that kind of, uh, hands on. It's, it was, Sadly, kind of more of a fear-based thing for me than like executing a vision. What do you mean? I'm just, just the fear of being portrayed inaccurately. Oh yeah, I see. Well, th- this, this we, I was joking with uh, Kumail before the show that my hard-hitting uh, joke, uh, a question rather, was, uh, "Do you feel stuck in your persona?" But let me say before, yeah, the reason I ask you that is. One time we were at the cellar and we neither of us perform at the cellar. Yeah, <laughs> just two guys hanging out at the cellar. Yeah. Um, I haven't done a set there in like a decade. I know. You told me that Esty uh, said your, yours was the only tape that made her laugh out loud. I was psyched. I remember. Yeah, that was a really nice thing she said. And, and, then, and I, then I just you know sometimes the comedy clubs for me felt like a pyrrhic victory. I just didn't. I understand that. Completely. You know what I mean? I just completely. And I know a lot of comedians have their points of view on how many rooms you should do and what kinds you should do. But yeah. it's really to each his own, you know. You know, that's so funny. I had a funny talk with uh, Chelsea Peretti where she was like, I feel guilty if I don't perform enough, if I don't go up at the store and then I do the factory or whatever it is. And I'm like, no, we're the guys. People yeah. should wonder what I do. Yeah. You should wonder what my method is and that's then copy right. me. That's right. What am I going to... Oh, I, I, I'm going to feel bad because I stayed and watched the town for the 15th. Yeah. Fuck well, you. That's my whatever. process. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, though. It's not even... Right. Yeah. No. Totally. Got to own it. But the cellar is a weird place because it's it's a, such a – the comedy cellar is a, the club at the beginning of Louie for those of who you know, uh, who watch Louie. It's kind of this place in New York that just seems like if you're a, like a real hardcore yeah. New York comic, comic, capital C, you perform there right. and you kill there. And I never played there. I haven't played there. And I still think about it. It's kind of like one of those things where I'm mm. like, I kind of wish I had access to that place. But – Christian Finnegan said something really interesting to me once. He said, there are two kinds of comedians, those that got called faggot 
and those that called people mm. faggot. And the comedy cellar always felt like more of the people that called people faggot. And if I went up, I feel like I would yeah. start acting as if I were yeah. someone who called people faggot. I think it's sorry for saying faggot so many times. No, <laughs> that's I'm from Jersey Shore, so it's really <laughs> I just felt at home. Are you kidding me? Do you want to smear off ice? Yeah, um, I feel like I, you know, I think I, I tend to like a lot of people spend a lot of time analyzing things or you know you end up overthinking stuff you end up in these little rabbit holes but when i think about the clubs in new york or a lot of the times i was like am i doing enough spots am i not where should i be getting up i would always try to redirect back to you know first principles like why am i doing this in the first place yeah it's like my friends who would get work doing commercials at that point in the journey it's so plum. It's so great. Yeah, you think, yeah. wow, so you got you did a commercial and you've got money for <laughs> six months yeah. or whatever it is now. Yeah. I'm still doing my temp job. Yeah. I can't get commercials. I can't get a commercial agent. I, I'm not, I don't look right for them. Like, you know, unless they're selling like PETA or some sort of a Kronos <laughs> product, I'm not going <laughs> to appeal to anybody. Kronos, feta cheese. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is not going to happen. So I remember thinking, oh, wow, he's so lucky he got a commercial. But that's it's funny. Everything's like a weird exit on the highway. Yeah. So you just hope that the road that you took for that exit doesn't lead you too far from the highway if you want to get back to it. Yeah. Like when you have to pull over to pee or you want to get some food or some gas, you know, you you, want to do a commercial. (laughs) Yeah. So you do a commercial and I'd, you know, you see some of your friends, they get a commercial. Yeah. And all of a sudden they got another commercial and now they spend a lot of their time auditioning for commercials. Yes. And the creative energy and that part of their brain and their self that might have been also kind of fed through their stand-up has now had to move over a little bit for commercial and work. that belongs yeah. to a corporation kind of it does yeah. yeah and it's also and of course if your goal is to be a commercial actor and you're good at it you can make a really good living yeah and it's certainly better than many many other jobs in the world like it's great you know sure. if that's what you want the, the problem is if that's not what you want if the highway you, was leading somewhere else that's where you get in trouble do you read self-help books because i, I love reading them i haven't i feel like you're uh very speaking very much um like them. you know i did i went through a phase so i started in the summer of 97 doing stand-up and i'd say that spring probably for two years they're like leading into doing stand-up and then my first couple of years being really broke. I read, yeah, I read a lot of them. I read, um, I like to go the really old school though. I, I got a New York public library, library card and I got the, the transcendentalist. I read like Thoreau and Emerson. Oh, wow. Which I, I thought you meant by like old school, like Wayne Dwyer's first book. <laughs> no, nobody's I, even heard. I mean, of I don't it. know if you're right. I don't know if the transcendentalists are considered self-help, but I should say I was using that kind of stuff. No, sure. As like self-help where it's like, March to the beat that, of your own drummer. That's absolutely so. Find your, you know. Thoreau was the first self-help guy. I think. Yeah, just, totally. One of the first. Jesus, maybe. Yeah. And, and then, uh, and then, and then uh, Abraham Maslow, psychologist, the pyramid of needs, uh-huh. the hierarchy of needs, where the top is like being self-actualized, being uh-huh. like fulfilled. The bottom is like food. I don't right. know the exact pyramid. A listener right. would probably know it better than I do. But the pyramid goes up where at the bottom it's just the very basic rudiments of survival, food and shelter and warmth and stuff it's like so that. Funny. And then you go up and up and up. You know, I spend so much of my time thinking about this. The yeah. basic human needs, goals. I know. Yeah. I know. This. I. I don't know what it is. There's like this like kind of weakness associated with this type of talk. But the strongest people I know 
all do this sort of mm. stuff. Like start their day with some sort of like, what do I want to do today? What am I doing today? Yeah. How do I want that to go? Yeah. Like, like the way I imagined you thinking about your show, it's like, how do I want this to appear? Yeah. I, I, you know, when I, I never set out to do a sketch show, um, I never did sketch comedy. I never did improv. Right. And I never did acting or any of that. I wanted to do stand up and I wanted to just specifically tell jokes because I like jokes. I like the game of telling jokes, right. you know, at least especially when I started. So when that opportunity came up, it was because I had done the person special, my the only hour I've ever done on TV. Right. Um, the ratings were good enough and they said, you know, you can do a pilot for a thing. And they said, if it's like your special, then we'll be really interested. So I thought, I understand. So I can put some different elements in it. There was a cartoon in the right. special and stuff that I'd made. So I thought, hmm, you know, this is not really part of my plan. This is an exit on the highway. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never had a chance to act. Yeah. And I've never had a chance to try to translate my sensibility into scene work. I've yeah. had a chance. I just haven't taken it. I could have written stuff for UCB, I guess, and tried, but I've never right. had a, a strict deadline, I should say, to do it. So I took it as a great opportunity to do that and make sure that I could do scene work in the show and try to see how I could do those kinds of scenes. Yeah. Eventually hoping that I could then write movies and do scenes in them. So for me, it was kind of in all the sketches in the show, I tried to have people committing to what they were performing, like actually feel what they were feeling. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, they were more like scene work than a traditional absurdist like sketch where like, oh, this guy doesn't believe he's that for one second. I was trying to at least see if I could commit to what I was doing. Yeah, that's really interesting. But it actually started, I noticed that about you, the deliberateness of your vision for your work actually, I think, started for me with your presents because you're the only person I know that broke it into three acts yeah you yeah. knew the time yeah you didn't want them to edit you yeah who i mean honestly who thinks like that you do and th- and that's weird yeah, that, I, and it's wonderful yeah i did 45 minutes when did I you did my present wow and that's retarded did you get access to the edit at all by then were they doing that um they or, let me give them notes and they took that's them. cool they, that's cool and they took them which was that's really nice. that was a that's a step forward from when i did it yeah you but you, you, you had were, no access whatsoever. You were kind of raging against the machine. So you didn't want them to mess up the order of your jokes. So you played a loop of music yeah. that would make it literally impossible for them to change the order. Yeah, I had four. I had three pretty solid tactics. The first was the drawings, which I'd done off and on in the little rooms around New York. But it right. wasn't, um, you know, I just tell jokes usually. I just stand there with a the microphone. But I thought, oh, this is good. I can. But you wanted to make it an event. You wanted to make it a thing. Yeah, and I, and I knew that, as you said, I knew the timing roughly of each act. And I knew that it's going to be harder to remove a drawing from yeah. that sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to have to just have a single of my head for a long time, which is going to look really weird. Right. You have to remove the pad from the shot. Right. So, and then when I go to turn the page, you'd have to catch me as I, the, the page that you're turning has to be invisible. It has to be obscured already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, <laughs> or they could blur it. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, they're not going to be able to take jokes out of this. Right. And at the end of the pad, it says the end. Right. So I can dictate my applaud, my commercial break. Yeah. Because that will generate, it should generate clapping. Like a song. So there you go. So there's a commercial. I thought that act is taken care of. If, if I've timed it right and the jokes have worked enough, you know, it's a little bit of a trust fall. <laughs> the right. joke eats shit, then you have to deal I'm with stuck it. in there with it, you know. Uh, and then, yeah, I did the thing with the boom box. And yeah. I played a little waltz on the piano. 
And it's there you got to find a break in the music and in my talking if you want to take a drink. And the crowd. It's, yeah. it's literally, I think it's impossible. It's like and so, and sure enough, that the only act they really fiddled with was the first one where I just did straight stand-up. And that's where they could change right. the joke order and, and check, you know. I don't know if this is true, but I heard that uh, Zach uh, Galifianakis took off layers of clothing. Yeah, I remember talking to him about that. It was yeah. after. Because he did it maybe a year or two before me. Same year Slovin and Alan, because I went to see Leo and Eric's special tape. Uh-huh. And I think Zach was in their same group. And then I, after I did mine, I remember we were all hanging out once and I said, yeah, you know, I did all this stuff to control the order. And yeah. Zach's like, yeah, that's why I took my sweater off. Oh, that's He's so He's like, funny. I took my sweater off and I moved the glass of water. Like he did the continuity stuff, I think. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's funny. It's In retrospect, it seems like lower stakes. But at the time, it's really of course. big. It's pretty high no, stakes. Oh, God. And it's one audience. You don't, you know, a lot of people, when they do an hour, they... You do your own special. You get two crowds right. in the same room. And they edit it into one. And you go to the edit. And it's funny. I really outsmarted myself because uh, then when I shot my own special, I didn't direct it, but when I got to do my own hour, which of course is only 44 minutes, I guess, on Comedy Central, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'll do the pad and I'll do this thing with guitar, whatever. But now I was the guy in the edit. <laughs> I was like, damn, I wish I could take that joke out, but I can't. <laughs> 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 Well, That's I'm great. The man. You were giving yourself network I'm notes. raging against my machine. <laughs> and you couldn't take them. Um, Bummer. That's really, really funny. God, what was I just about to say? Oh, this goes back to what I was going to say about being stuck in your persona and the seller. And the thing that you said to me that I think would be very encouraging to the uh, younger comedian listeners. When did I become an old man? Mm-hmm. But uh, Just after I did. <laughs> <laughs> you said to me, because I hadn't done my presents yet, and I really wanted to. And I think maybe I had just done my premium blend. And you were like, what's the rush? And you're like, yeah. once that exists, that exists. Yeah. That will be there. And then you said something that I, I wrote down and it was like just kind of like in this like little collection of inspiring quotes, one of which Jim Gaffigan, who said, be undeniable. Mm. I hung that above my nice. desk. I still say that to myself. Sounds like a slogan for heroin. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say like Nike or Adidas <laughs> and you're like, no, the hard stuff. Heroin. Be, uh, heroin is pretty undeniable. And you said anonymity is power. Yeah. Which is a really weird thing. It's kind of another self-helpy thing. But you took something that comedians don't like, anonymity, yeah, and made it power. Because you were like, you can literally go anywhere. Yeah. Me, I am this guy. I'm these lightning bolts. I'm the double hawk. Yeah. I tell these types of jokes. Yeah. This is my tone of voice. These are the kind of clothes I wear. Yeah. I marshal you. If you went on stage in a suit and tie, I'd be like, that's not you. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I did some one-man shows that mostly I played overseas, those comedy festivals. And there, nobody knew anything about me. And to be honest, when I left the States to go do those, it's not like really anybody knew me here. Right. But at least in the New York scene, I guess I was doing one-liners. And that's, again, what I naturally gravitate to. So I guess if you're just being authentic, then it's fine. Um, but still, I wanted to try something different, so I went over there and I did these one-man shows. Those were all very autobiographical. Oh, they weren't really... No, those were long personal stories. I did a whole show about I really my marriage falling if apart. If I? Is that if I? No, Spiral Bound. I did a show where uh, it's the premise was there were two... It's kind of an A story and a B story. The idea was I have this rare condition and I have this allergic reaction that it can project you into an object. So I get I end up getting projected into my notebook. <laughs> so the A story in the notebook is just me trying to get out of my own notebook. I'm just trying to walk through my notebook. <laughs> and I just tell I tell the audience, like, this happened. I, I woke up and I'm in this room and it's really white. 
<laughs> and I, I, was, I didn't know where I was, but it felt familiar, and the floor was just like glowing. And then I saw like kind of blue <laughs> lines, and I realized, oh, I'm, in, I'm actually in my notebook. Jeez. So I just told this ridiculous story. And then what happened was, as I walked through the notebook, I come up to things that I've written, but they look like vines. It looks like foliage, but it's ink. Uh-huh. And when I walk into a patch of it, it's like a portal. It takes me to what I wrote. It takes me to the memory. So if I wrote a story about being a kid, I walk into that story. And as I walk into the vines, the ink, it, I'm there. But it's um, resolution and reality is in direct proportion to how well I wrote it. <laughs> so if it's just an idea, it's like kind of sketchy, blurry memory. But if it's a really detailed thing, then I'm really re-experiencing. So those were, that was the B story was yeah. each I, thing I walked into was a progression. And I, I structured the show so that I was walking into memories that told the story of a relationship. Yeah. So there was breaks. It was back to the A story. Oh, I just went past this page and I came to a page of like invention ideas. Here's what they are. I tell them. Then I'm like, then I walked into this part and you know, some stupid sound effect I had on stage. And then I'm like, Oh, here's like a first date I was on. And then I just tell a very, very true autobiographical <laughs> story. So in that, that show was for me, that was 2004. It was great. I got laughs off of very personal, emotional, uh, narrative pieces. It wasn't one liners. And then I, I nested some one liners into the show, but that was, that was very fun. And that, that I got to do in Scotland. So you've tasted the, uh, the fruit of the, uh, self-explorative autobiographical oversharing comedian. Yes, I think what I what I find is I call it the who gives a shit test and it it's very hard I'm a pretty tough audience for anybody to pass the who gives a shit like when they're talking about themselves and listeners might find it right now with me. It's just who gives a shit, you know? It's like it's got to be really compelling or yeah. I, I just don't care. Yeah. No, it's a tricky thing. It's tricky. I, I I am also divorced. And when I got divorced, I was 28. Mm. And uh, you also got married young, didn't you? Yeah, I was divorced at 27. So I was married 25, got divorced at 27. I was married 22, got divorced at 28. Mm. Uh, religious. That's that's an interesting element. And everybody was like, you'll do a one-man show. And I couldn't get myself to a place where I thought everyone would give a shit. Yeah. I was like, I didn't pass my own give a shit test. Yeah. I was like, uh, there aren't enough events or whatever. And but you you found it. By the way, you Yeah, did. I mean the whole show wasn't just about that. I think I found it in a mix of personal confessional things and yeah. what I thought were more imaginative kind of fictional devices. You got to get a you're like Charlie Kaufman, man. <laughs> oh, totally, and you don't man. you don't so do like <laughs> you don't do drugs though, right? I mean No. Yeah. I, I have too many food allergies, man. People ask me if I do drugs. I'm like I'll, I'll, <laughs> I could die from eating a sandwich. If I if there's peanut butter on it, I'm dead. If I eat like a legume, I could go to the hospital. <laughs> You're not I, missing it's anything. It's such a Legumes huge deterrent to like just smoke something somebody hands me. You know, right. like, if I were to get into drugs, I would have to be super meticulous. Yeah. I'd have to grow or cultivate my own stuff. It's not know. really the rock and roll persona that normally yeah. goes with drugs. Mine would be yeah, more of an anal retentive junkie. Your mom was a nutritionist, is that or is yeah. a nutritionist, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, yeah. But you have weird food things? Yeah. You can't eat food? Uh, <laughs> seafood, nuts, and poultry. Let's go get some Thai food. Yeah, that's right. One time I went out to dinner with some friends, and three people ordered Thai chicken pizza. It was like four ingredients that would kill me. In my <laughs> Very frail. It's a real awareness of one's own mortality. That that's really, really difficult. You. 
Well, you know what's interesting is uh, when I t- talk to people whose relationships have fallen apart, I, I know uh, from listening to your What the Fuck, we were joking that my show is like, what the heck? <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. a softer, gentler. But um, I'm interested in one of the things that my wife, uh, my ex-wife, what do you say? Yeah. She was my wife. I'm telling you a story yeah, of when oh, she was my wife. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, my wife. I guess I say at the time. My wife at the time. <laughs> my wife at the time when we broke up said you already have it's, – it's one of the haunting things. She said uh, you already have your your love and she meant comedy. And that doesn't mean that I was mm. like distant or not there. In fact, I was an open micer at the time pretty much. I was always there. We spent a shit ton of time together. Yeah. But she could feel my passion and my focus towards that was prob- – it was greater than yeah. uh, mine towards her. What it, What is the formula that, for a correct that's, relationship? That's so funny community? though because of course – the two people have their different perspectives and she's got some sort of a mutually exclusive definition. Of yeah. <laughs> well, you can you, only do one thing at a time. I guess. Don't you want to be with somebody that has like a, yeah. a rich purpose and meaning and all that sort of stuff. I think also my private theory is that it must be difficult to be with someone who does have a drive, does have goals, does have purpose, is constantly rewarded for them. We have a lot yeah. of pain too, but yeah. constantly rewarded yeah. and a lot of adulation. And they're just kind of like, what do I do with this guy? I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I'm yeah. always interested in what comedians think about I, love and, and what used, they're going to do with that. I remember thinking at some point, again, form and content is always an easy way to start to like kind of split things into two. And if I, if I had to sort things between the two, I can say, Oh, okay. These words are the content, you know, this drawing is a form, right. excuse me. But in a relationship, I always thought, the content doesn't seem to matter that much that the two people kind of <laughs> occupy, but the form really matters. <laughs> and as much as, um, if one person likes to live a, a more nonlinear life or a less linear life, a more of a risk taking, like, I don't want to do a job for more than a year. Every couple of years I want to change into something different. Right. Whereas the other one, it just seems almost to come down to logistics where it's like, <laughs> I like to go to bed every night at this time. Yeah. And I like to eat in this restaurant all the time. You know, it can be a physicist and dancer. It can be two accountants. It seems right. like it could be a comedian and a lawyer. It's just that the form is just so important. Of yeah. Like how you like to live your day-to-day life. It almost makes me think that internet dating should work perfectly. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm talking about maintenance maybe more than finding somebody you love. Right. But maybe once you're with someone you think you love. On a long enough love, timeline. It's, it's just more stuff. the kind of marathon of it maybe. It's, I don't know. For me, it just seems like you were talking about having a plan for your day. You know, I think when you're really with somebody, of course, they're going to be a part of that plan. So hopefully they fit in there. I, I always find that when I wake up in the morning, whatever I, the first thing I think of, if that's positive or negative, that's very important. Yeah. If I wake up and I feel dread. Yeah. And I do that for enough days in a row, then it's time for some sort of a big change. Yeah. But if I wake up more times than not and I'm looking forward to what it is I have to do that day. And on top of it, if I can get money for that thing, then I win. Like that, yeah. I'm set. Like that's a good life. Yeah. You know, and then the achievements would be byproducts of that, I think. Right. You know what I mean? Whether it's whatever you want to do. It just seems like that's just such an important, local, simple way to do it. Being excited for your... I think, yeah, waking up and having something that you are looking forward to doing that day yeah. that is not going to kill you. You know what I mean? Again, like if it's, I can't wait to eat five cakes. All right, well, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not like a perfect test. But again, for me, law school was always the great example because I was young and I was in New York and I was at this law school and I'd wake up and I was just dreading 
what I had to do. I was getting good grades. Mm-hmm. The people whose approval I thought I needed, I was getting. I had a scholarship. Like I had my soon-to-be fiance at the time. So what's wrong? You know, she's going to be a doctor. I'll be a lawyer. <laughs> I'm all set here. The problem was the actual day-to-day life wasn't so good because I was dreading yeah. it was a mismatch for what I had to offer. You know, whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah. For what it's worth. I mean, for me, that's it comes down to very simple tests. No, I think that's absolutely right. That's so funny. This is something I was just thinking about. I'm also obsessed with the last thing of the day and the first mm. thing of the day. And I found this is going to sound really self-helpy. I deliberately get immediately out of bed when my alarm goes off. Hmm. Like I don't want to, but I've con- like kind of conditioned myself. You don't want to myself. like lollygag. I, I want to get up as – I want to act like a person who is excited for his day. And for all intents and purposes, I should be. Mm-hmm. My life is, is exciting and interesting. Yeah. But I have to condition myself to be like, I'm getting up right away. Nice. I'm going to immediately start moving. And is that different from how you were, say, in high school or something? That's different from how I was uh, six months ago. Wow. Like, I mean, I would set my alarm for the last possible minute rush and go to work and now I, I feel like that's a sign of maturing is like i get up i want to have that like me time it feels nice. like a grown-up sort of thing yeah but you can get so much done in that time oh yeah here's what's interesting though as my life improves and i mean my personal life i'm single and i'm i'm having all this time i start my day with like a long walk really good for the brain speaking nice. of throw yeah and then i end my day with a, a long walk too i i love all that time to like kind of get blood up there but like then when I think of a girlfriend, what I associate that with is the loss of that ability. Mm, and then I think of you with your 20 minutes and your and, and uh, whatever the different things that you want to do yeah. to have your comedy laboratory set up. How does a girl fit into that? Yeah, well, for, I think my girlfriend is – she doesn't work in the business. Uh, she does interior design. So it's creative. She has a creative job. And she's a creative person. She sees her ideas on walls. and Yeah, you know, one thing she said that was really I'm interesting. I'm not speaking down to it. You know what I mean by that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It yeah. exists. Yeah, well, she said something really cool once when she came into the edit when we were doing the show. And a bunch of us were trying to decide a bit. Like, how does this work? And we were debating. Put this there. I don't know. Maybe it's too long. And she didn't say anything. And then when we went home later, she said, that was pretty interesting for me. She said, most of your creative work has to do with time. <laughs> and she said, most of mine has to do with space. Yeah. Um, I don't have to usually worry about time. When I'm designing something for someone, there might be time elapsing as you walk through a room <laughs> or a store or a lobby, but really you're designing something that's fixed in space. So it's like how spatial things relate to each other. Uh-huh. Most of what we do is how things relate to each other in time. But I thought that was an interesting insight. And it's like one of the nice bonuses of finding a partner who's creative, but in a very different way. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't answer your question about how we fit into our little 20 minute schedule, you know I, but she's right now has a job that's say nine. She leaves in the morning around eight mm-hmm. and comes home around six. So she has kind of a nine to five job you know, right. with the commute and everything. And I don't. So that's when you get your time in. Yeah. But that's, it's been, it's been hard. There was a time when I was really busy and she was unemployed and there's yeah. a time when we're both kind of have half jobs and now she's got a full job and I'm kind of unemployed. Right. I do the road and I'm writing stuff. I got hired to write, say some pilot and I'm trying to write a screenplay for myself, but I could not do that for two <laughs> weeks. You know, I get in trouble with the pilot, but right. There's you nobody can give yourself the time. I off. have nowhere to show up. I get to choose where I go. You know, it's very unstructured right. and I could very easily go all day and not speak to anybody until she gets home. So that's tricky. That's yeah. different. And she gets to be in a bustling office and interact and have jokes with people and all that kind of stuff. That's, really that's where I, that's where I think the challenge comes in. Cause it's a, it's a form. That's where the form is kind of 
malleable and variable, but I think we've been together long enough where we've been through different scenarios. Yeah. Well, it both sounds of, like it. Yeah. Both of us busy. Neither of us busy. One of us busy. The other busy. Yeah. So it seems like if you can still be happy and manage things, but I, I'm not speaking in, I'm not speaking very romantically here. I don't know the secrets to the real, you know, in your heart stuff, but I just right. think like the kind of maintenance stuff of it. How do you, that, I find that very interesting. How do, how do you think she contends with the, uh, I also don't do a lot of sets, which is a problem. I, I perform very little man. No. What did I just say? It's our, what we're doing. That's what people should study. Yeah. I'm with you. You have to have a life worth commenting on. Yeah. Believe me. You got to perform yeah. all the time. And that's when I'm at my best. And I'll beat myself up and I'll book club dates. I'll book some college that I maybe don't want to do because I want to stay sharp. But I also, like I said, I want to stay in and watch Rocky. Yeah. You know, and it's like it's our I lives, you know, cook we're gonna, or whatever. Yeah. We're going to look up one day if we're lucky and we'll be old men. Yeah. If, and if we're not lucky, then we won't look up one day. <laughs> be long gone and Something went will. wrong. Something went but, wrong. Yeah. I, when, when I was in New York, I remember early on guys standing outside a club saying, yeah, how many sets did you do this week? I did 17. Yeah. I was like, I did 16, you know? You know what that's Thinking, I did two. Yeah. 17. What are you doing for, you're writing that fast? You got to do 17 sets. But you know, some people, they write more on stage. They got to get into the rhythm or the groove of it, whatever it is. Right. But it's, it's just being mindful, you know, like what are you doing with each set? If your process requires that 17, kind of drilling, I mean, the older I get, the more I think, where is the point of diminishing returns Absolutely. And, what, and whatever it is I'm doing and how do I get out right before it? Yeah. And that's, I feel like it's games again though. It just feels like a game, you know? It is. Yeah. You want to see me do a new bet when I'm three quarters of the way through the process of perfecting it. Cause yeah. then I'm still excited about it. Yeah. I'm still very curious which parts you're going to laugh at. Yeah. And, uh, but when it's four out of four complete, I know where you're going to laugh. I know how to like manipulate and uh, basically take advantage of the crowd or whatever. Yeah. Try to, yeah. And that's not as thrilling for either of us, yeah. So like, I, I'm I'm totally a big proponent of being like, live your life, do as many sets as you need to to get to where you're trying to go. Again, to be goal oriented. Yeah, I used to do uh, B three was a room uh-huh. in the East Village, Lower East Side, I guess it was actually. Sometimes I love that room, but Becky Donahue was her yeah. room, uh-huh. and. Goat peeing on a tuna melt or something? She Some, had a bit like that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the crowd was great. It was what we call real people. <laughs> they, they managed to wander in there. Other nights, it wasn't real people. It was comedians. Yeah. Sometimes it was really terrible. I, I like to say civilians. It's civilians. so fucking condescending. In fact, my wife left me uh, for another guy, and I, I was like, is it a comedian? And she said no. And I said, you're leaving me for a civilian? That's funny. That's literally what I said to her. And like one of the yes. lowest parts of my life made a joke. You got out early. You weren't even 30. So no, I know. Similar. No, there, there's no regrets. But I thought it was very bizarre that I was like, how can and you, you ever want to be with a non-comedian? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I don't get it. But oh, I, wow. do, I do kind of get it. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, mine was when we got together, I had no aspirations to be a comedian. It's different. So there was no, um, it was a surprise. Yeah. And so it was like I kind of blew it in a sense like, what? You're going to be a comedian? You were, what are you talking about? Yeah. But I thought, well, yeah, I found what I'm passionate about here. So I have to do this. Yeah. Um, and I thought it could work together, but then. It's, it was pretty clear that it couldn't. And so, you know, well, I was 27, I, I, you were 28. So I was kind of happy once I kind of got out of there and I was, I was hurt and sad and everything. But after a while, 
I felt, wow, great. She she's now remarried and has kids. So is mine. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm. There was some I, 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 I like. Yeah, I like my. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Wow, man. Sorry. Yeah, yours <laughs> sounds like a more difficult, emotionally harder. Ours was hard, but we had no. You know, there was no scandal to it. Really, it was right? Just just didn't work. It sounds. Have you seen the movie Matchpoint? Woody Allen's movie. Yeah. Uh, it's that, this is how I picture your marriage based on what you just said is that, uh, you know, he's in two relationships, spoiler alert. Uh, he's with the girl that wants him to be rich and be a doctor. So I'm thinking of that being your one life and you have doctor lawyer set up Cosby show style. Yeah. And then you have the seductress, which is Scarlett Johansson, who is like a fucking insane sex yeah. beast who's exciting and interesting. And in this version of, uh, match point, you don't shoot Scarlett. You, you went for her. Nice. <laughs> I like that you equated comedy with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, no, she is Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. She's kind of mean, but she's really hot. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, for me, you know, I didn't date many girls before her. I was down at Jersey Shore growing up and a dork. I was on the math team, physics team. I loved skateboarding. I liked drawing, although I kind of, that fell off during high school and, <laughs> I had my little kind of system I like to do and hang out with my friends. I had crushes on girls. It was kind of just not, I was always fine in front of a large group of people and even in the smaller group of people, but it was one-on-one where I felt like kind of a silence filler and, you know, just not cool. Right. So my ex-wife was from my high school. I knew her. We were on physics team together and stuff. I mean, this is from way back. Went to the prom together and everything. Wow. So, um, by the time I was 27 and the thing was all over, I had, tried stand up and life I was growing up a little bit and life had changed a little but still I had hardly dated anyone so it was like my 20s really happened in my th- or ha- you know have so, happened in my oh 30s God, I was Dimitri, kind of late. Get out of, yeah get out of my brain that's every development meeting I've ever had where yeah. I'm pitching shows about myself I'm like it's it's my 20s and my 30s yeah. that's what I'm constantly doing because I this is a bit of an overshare that my wife was the first girl that I slept with. And then I was like, Oh, we get married. That's what we do. Religious people. We got married. We moved to Chicago, continued having sex. And then we get divorced. And then I literally, I remember being like, what do I do? How do I like, I said to somebody, how do you sleep with a girl? Is there a meal involved? That's what I said. It was like a genuine question. No clue. It was like 40 year old virgin. I really relate related to 40 year old virgin. Cause yeah, I was that like, makes sense. I wasn't 40, I was 28, but I didn't know what I was doing. Isn't that amazing? Super weird. I, I love that you did that as well. Yeah. And then it was this kind of new, new life after that. Say, all right, you know, here we go. Let's and don't you feel that you learned a lot and then you kind of like came out better on the other side? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I definitely do. And I don't know things as complicated as they get. There are nice touchstones to go back to in your head to say, for me, I'd always say my worst day in comedy is better than my best day in law school. Yeah. Which I've said many times because it's a good reminder because it is true. You know, I can bomb or be in some shitty hotel somewhere and I just <laughs> want to go home and what's happening. Yeah. But I think this is still, this is for me. You know, this is, I knew from my first set, first time I got on stage, I thought this is, yeah, I got to do oh, this. Man. You know, I'm lucky. I don't know where to lead, but I, I have a calling. Like I found something that I, you know, the first thing that I w- am not afraid to work extremely hard at. Yeah. You know, I think for me through, through school and stuff, the game was always, um, what's the least amount of work I have to do for the greatest output. Yeah. Without, I didn't cheat or anything. It was just like, you know, it's like 
no, a, a larger game like the system, it's, right? You know, school, public school, especially. But comedy just isn't like that, you know. For me, it's yeah, like I, I don't. I'm happy to write a million jokes if that's what it takes. Right, you know? I like writing. What an absurd privilege it is to be comedian. I think about it all the time. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to be in a state of gratefulness all the time. Even like you saying, you're in some shitty hotel. Go fuck yourself. Lay some brick, you yeah, asshole. Exactly. I mean, like, sorry, I swear so much, yeah. but it's just kind of like that's how I feel. There's no real room. You can feel darkness, or you can feel depression or, or low it's like we all know that bombing is very painful because they're rejecting us they don't understand us and we've, yeah. we've failed and that hurts but like you're absolutely right it's it's better than doing uh something that you don't care about Scarlett yeah johansson man yeah it seems like you want to be you just yeah you want to be passionate about what you're doing yeah it's not a a contentious argument i don't not many people are going to argue against that and say no you shouldn't be passionate <laughs> about what you're doing but it gets complicated. It's a simple principle, but it yeah. gets complicated pretty quickly. Or even just trying to look forward to what you're doing each day when you wake up. That's pretty simple. Right. Until you got to pay your bills and figure out where you're going to live, what part of the country. And I mean, yeah. this relationship, it's long distance. Should we be together? You know, all these kinds of things yeah. come in. So it's, of course, life gets very complicated. But it is nice to be reminded of those guiding principles if you have them. Right. No, that's absolutely true. There's like a million things to talk about. You're on the show that's downstairs. I'm wondering we're about we're at about an hour. We're at about fifty six minutes exactly. So a couple more minutes. God, I have like eight million things to talk. I really I can give want short to, answers. I really want to talk about religion. Are you religious now? No, not at I, all. I, I I'm not sure if I'm an atheist or an agnostic, but it definitely starts with an A. Whatever. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Which means not right. <laughs> Yeah, and my father was a priest. My father was a priest. He died when I was 20. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Bumpy plane ride? What's that? Bumpy plane ride. That's the question. Any any religion seeping in there? Yeah. TJ Miller, who's the biggest atheist I know, told me that his life goal is to not uh, not, um, accept God on his deathbed, which Mm. I think is badass. I mean, like, I like like belief. I'm turned on by belief. I'm turned on by people that have opinions i I gravitate towards them so even though that is like offensive to my religious upbringing uh i'm still kind of like god love you i find that exciting do you ever read the varieties of religious experience by william james no should i you might enjoy it i remember liking that book i read that in college and then during my little transcendentalist period and everything (laughs) I, i went back and i read that book what i liked about it was he was from what i remember one of the first or most prominent pragmatists in American philosophy and stuff. Okay. But his whole argument, again, I'm paraphrasing, and I know the comedy listeners know a lot about James here, and they're going to call my shit. Because um, I know as much as my listeners probably, but maybe a couple of people know this better than what I'm talking about. My point is this. Uh, it seemed like the point of the book was, let's not worry about whether there's a God or not. Put that aside for a sec. Let's talk about what the results of having beliefs are. Interesting. Just what is the power of belief? Like, let's just put it aside, but what do you believe? And I think he did, I don't think he was saying there's no God or anything, but he was saying, what are the results? What are the pragmatic results of being a person who believes in this world? To be a believer, you know? Which I thought was a very interesting and persuasive kind of line of reasoning to go down. But wouldn't it be better than more pragmatic to be a believer? I have a bit about this, and it's actually kind of something that I wrestle with all the time where I'm kind of like, and a lot of self-helpy sorts of things that I read are kind of like having that higher power is beneficial to you psychologically. Yeah. I, there's a book called Flatland a long time ago that I read where 
it's it's a story that takes place in a two dimensional world. <laughs> so the characters are it's like, like your one man show. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, the characters are like a circle and a square and a triangle, <laughs> and they can only look to the sides. So if you go in a house, you know you can go around a wall and then you're inside the house. <laughs> and then again, I don't remember this that well, but my version of it that I remember is this red circle starts appearing mm-hmm. and disappearing. It's like a flash. So it's like square will be on the street and all of a sudden there's a red circle in front of it and then it's gone. <laughs> and then it's in somebody's house. Some triangles like sitting in his house and there's a red circle and it's gone. And this, this shapes are talking to each other. I'm massively paraphrasing here, but they're saying, what the hell is going on with this? I don't know why I'm so enthralled with this, this story. red circle. Like what's the deal? Yeah. And it turns out it was a ball bouncing, but there's no third dimension for those shapes. Right. So to them, what they see, what we see is a sphere bouncing around. They just see the circle touching yeah. the plane and then bouncing off it. So when I think about religion, I just think I'm a shape and religion's like the ball that's bouncing. God, my brain just melted. Where that's, I don't know. I'm, the, just, no, a, I'm most... just a primate like the rest of us. I'm just some animal, you know? God. So what the hell do I know? But I, I love that metaphor of like... I'm not, I can sit here, I could be a little triangle in a house saying, there's no God, there's no third dimension, you know, and I could get in a big fight with some other shape, but yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact that whatever's happening, like we're right. never going to know. You know, this is a thought that, that, thank you for that. That really just changed my life. Listen <laughs> to this though. One of the things that I used to say that feels like a thought almost from your brain is an afterlife makes as much sense to me as a life. Listen, listen to me because this sounds like a Dimitri Martin thought is that I used to think that there were beings pre-existing in the way that we know existing, kind of floating in the ether, that debate about whether or not there's a life, this life, Mm. in the way that we debate whether or not there's an afterlife. Nice. And it it just kind of seemed like, why wouldn't there be an afterlife? Why is there a life? It's so absurd. It makes as much sense. It's arbitrary. It makes as much sense to be like thrown into some other existence after this one than it does to be in this one. Yeah, right. It's like the idea of evolution where people think, oh, we're done evolving. Evolution led up to this, but it's not like we're still part of it. Right. If you believe in evolution, then we're still on the way. Right. It's going to keep going. Yeah, I'm trying to write this book of short stories, so I like to think of, you know, characters situations could be a 10 page story maybe it ends up being a 30 page story or a two page story you know yeah but i was thinking of one i don't think i have a story with this but i thought it'd be weird if um scientists they figure out somehow that uh some everybody lives uh twice you do you do live at least twice (laughs) and you can tell by the mark on your body if you've already had a life or if you have another one coming. Oh God, that's cool. And if people, how their behavior would change if they had the mark or they didn't to be like, Oh, I got another one. <laughs> <laughs> or like, Oh, I've already had a life. So is this the end now? <laughs> but just two people in a relationship where one has the mark say, and the other doesn't. Do like, you want how to do they date live someone? Their, yeah. How do they live their lives? You know? <laughs> it's like those kinds of thought experiments. It would be like a thing. Like he's a smoker. He has the mark. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He kind of lives like a guy who knows it's the end. Yeah. He's, he's already had a life before this. Well, I, w- I always say, if you could tell me with certainty that life is over when we die completely, just, we just stop existing. Like we didn't exist before we were born. I wouldn't live with fear of that. I would be okay with that. But it's the idea. I'm almost afraid of God. I'm afraid of the idea of God, which is actually a religious principle, being afraid afraid Mm. of God. But I'm afraid of the character of God that I've built up in my mind, that he is going to uh, exist and be upset and punish me. I I mean, like, I buy 
on a primal level in a childish little 10-year-old me in my brain that still exists is afraid when I see like those paintings of Dante's hell and stuff. That's pretty scary. They're scary paintings. Yeah. And that's fucked up to show a kid before his brain is fully developed. (laughs) You know, it is. I think pattern patterns and habits are a big part of our behavior as, as animals, as humans. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how beliefs get woven into those, that cycle. Yeah. Get into that brain early. You can create a fundamentalist or a suicide bomber or uh, a priest or, you know, whatever it is. Soccer player. Yeah. It's just interesting that if, I guess if you assume that as human beings, just mechanically, physically, we're all not that different from one another. Yeah. If you could take that thing and train it a certain way, people will do crazy things and believe a lot of things. But I always wonder, how do I, what do I believe? How did I acquire the belief? Yeah. What don't I believe anymore? When did I lose it? Yeah. Like what happened? Do you know what I mean? There are certain things seeing is believing. Yeah. And vice versa, seeing is now not believing. You can, well, what, the what curtain if, goes up or something. What you saw was a red ball. And I'm not just trying to be cute. I'm just saying like, yeah. I, there's a bumper sticker on the lot that I'm working on right now. I pass it every day and it says, don't believe everything you think. And I'm like, shut up, man. It's such a disturbing bumper sticker. Yeah. And I think about it all the time. Because if you break down a belief... And this has a lot to do with self-help and conditioning and stuff. You can take a belief that you have. Like if you had a phobia and I was trying to uh, cure you of your fear of whatever hawks, I could break it down and be like, you got this belief because a hawk attacked you. I'm going to make you think of a hawk as a symbol of freedom and peace and wonder and, uh, you know, just so train hawks to bring like medical aid to you. (laughs) (laughs) Some sort of scenario. Keep helping me. It's, this is a bad movie pitch, but it's like me and Dimitri and I, I, I'm a weird scientist and you're maybe you're the scientist i don't know but like yeah, you're one in contagion and i i'm mm-hmm. wounded and you make a bird come and bring me uh bread yeah. bread and milk and nice. i'm like now i love hawks <laughs> but of course it's a, that's in the first act so it's wacky and the hawk eats my eyeballs so i hate them even more oh okay so it's one of those movies it's called hawkeye oh it's great <laughs> <laughs> the name kind of spoils the, what the happens one-eye. yeah <laughs> you could you could bury that title somehow yeah we'll find a way yeah i i, I remember thinking recently and we can just end it, I guess. But a lot of the stuff I believe is just basically... <laughs> I love that we're both kind of concerned with how we're doing. Just because i got to figure out my set. But no, I know. Jonah and They're still... Oh, the, oh, they just started the show. I love Jonah and Kumail so, so much. But every time... Wow. Every time I do the show, people come in and I'm like, uh, they'll be wrapping up in about three hours. That's hilarious. They do a long... It's set. gotten longer, huh? And you're on fourth. Oh, yeah. So I'm fine. But you know how it is down there. It's like heaven. Yeah. I don't want to get off. No, it's nice. It's very it? difficult to, to get off. When they downgraded Pluto a few years ago. Son of a bitch. That made me think, most of what I think I know is really just something somebody told me. Yeah. So, you know, if somebody came from another planet and said, sorry, so tell me about, you know, science. They say, oh, well, there's a solar system and right. you know, these are planets. And then the news comes out, oh, Pluto's not a planet anymore. I'd be like, Change your could belief. you hold on for a second? I think I'm, I got to check with whoever told me in the first place that those were the planets. Right. Since as long as I can know, those are the planets. Is hey, it? You know, it's funny. It's it's really just being told by other people. It's this not is, firsthand experience. I'm I love conspiracies. I'm a cons- I, I don't really necessarily believe in them. I just find them to be incredibly interesting storytelling. But they're also a study 
in how people can be told something. Because I, I know this. I regurgitate information to people. For example, mm -hmm. take the conspiracy that all of our leaders are lizard people. Okay, mm -hmm. It's one of my favorites. It's just fucking fascinating storytelling. And one of the precepts of this conspiracy is that every president that we've had, you can trace their bloodline back to the pharaohs. Mm. You can go all the way back. And if you go to the pharaohs, you go to the Sumerians. The Sumerians wrote about aliens that visited us. And uh, 300 of them remained on Earth to rule us. People can buy that. People can buy the idea that we learned agriculture and building pyramids and we got an extra chromosome that monkeys don't have because aliens came and manipulated our DNA. I'm <laughs> kind of convincing some people listening right now yeah. because I'm telling you something that I watched in an internet video. Right. But what is truth? How do we make these beliefs? They're made with ingredients that you reach out to grab that box of flour and it disappears in your hand. It doesn't actually exist. Yet we're yeah. making cakes every day. I want to eat eight cakes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, certainty is comforting, I guess, to a lot of people. Absolutely. And a story can, I guess, lead you to a conclusion that can make you certain of something. So well, then, then maybe you feel comfortable. Absolutely. Well, if you look at 9-11 uh, conspiracies, if you want to say, uh, and I, I actually think they make a lot of valid points, but they're also very comforting. Yeah. It's comforting to be like, it wasn't just random. It was all of this stuff that's controlling. And the people that I know that have anxiety disorders, the people that I know that are kind of schizophrenic tend to believe stuff like that. That's like, that's yeah. that cliche because they need to be calmed. We all need to be calmed, but especially people with some sort of disorder. I tried to joke a couple of times. Maybe I'll keep working on it, but it was something like, didn't really work. It's not the best joke, but it was, I can tell how stupid someone is by how sure they are of whatever they're saying. <laughs> and it just feels that way to me. It just, I often wrestle with the fact that I don't feel certain about many things. Absolutely. I have a pretty high degree of uncertainty and I, that's not the best companion for confidence. Yeah. Um, but people who are really sure, they just know. But you can be super confident in not knowing anything. Yeah. That's a, do you know Operation Ivy? We like similar music. But no, yeah, I don't that's, know. That's, um, they became rancid. So oh, really? I, we don't like pop. I don't know if you like pop punk, but I do. No, I, you know, maybe I like some of it. I don't, I don't, wouldn't have many albums. Of we that both stuff. like, we've talked about Elliot Smith. We like yes. kind of sad guitar yeah. music. Yeah. Uh, I love that sort of stuff too. But, uh, there's, there's a song called knowledge and the chorus is all I know is I don't know nothing, which, which is just perfect. I think I, I listen yeah. to that song all the time and that a lot of philosophers say that that's the beginning of pretty much any philosophy is to admit that you don't know yeah. anything. Yeah. God, that ball thing is going to be fucking anybody that took the time to listen that long into the <laughs> podcast received a gift. There's some movie about a woman that cooks a, an amazing meal i forget what it's called anyway it's really really long but apparently if you watch the whole thing it's rewarding that's what this podcast is mm, delicious because of you thank because you of, so you're not religious anymore dead over dead over i think so for now yeah that's great i just think that's really interesting uh you wrote for conan was that that was pulling off the highway uh yeah but very attractive uh, sure. side road and to call Conan the side road is, is not quite no, doing I, it justice because I tried three times for that job I wanted that job badly that yeah. was um, to me just seemed like such a great place to work at yeah. that time in New York yep. to be one of the sketch writers on Conan nobody would ever leave that job when somebody left there'd be like a hundred people applying for one position you know And but I got it uh, my third try I think it was 
and I had to give him 12 sketches for each packet. So I, at that point, had submitted 36 different oh, sketch man. ideas that were written out as paragraphs and everything. Yeah, but he, he, the reason I brought this up is, Katie, you'll remember, TJ confronted me about being a writer. I'm writing for a show on Fox right now, and I run a show for, on NBC. And then afterwards, like you always do when someone confronts you, because he was like, you should be focusing on your stand-up. Why are you selling out, basically, and writing for these shows? I was kind of like, it's hilarious. every comedian that I love, Steve Martin wrote for the Smothers Brothers, Conan wrote for SNL, uh, you wrote for Conan, um, and then even the, our peers, Mulaney wrote for, is writing for SNL, yeah. Hannibal wrote for 30 Rock. Mulaney wrote for me. Mulaney wrote for you. We both submitted at that same time. Is that right? Remember? He, you actually told Mulaney that I came very close, which meant a lot. Uh, and then fucking, uh, who am I forgetting? It doesn't matter. I just wish I had said that. Yeah. For the, for the four people that listen to that one and this one, I, that's my retort. It's also funny that <laughs> why does anybody care what anybody else is doing? I'm always fascinated by that. I mean, I think it's maybe laziness. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. for me to say, Pete, what are you doing? You got to do this or that. Who the hell am I? Like, why yeah. would I tell you anything about your career? I don't know TJ well. He's, he well, seems he, like a good guy, but you guys are good friends. So he's that's, a good so friend that's my, different. If it was my, one of my best friends, I could see, because it's, right. I guess, coming he, from a place. He of, meant it as like, I believe in you. Oh, So I stop doing this. You do this. And he didn't even say stop doing it's this. It's funny. I remember my ma- when I had a manager years ago. You don't have a manager now? No. He was, like, he was like, put down the guitar. Like, don't play guitar. <laughs> And I know a lot of people. I'm Didn't not they a good, say that to the Beatles? Guitar I, music you know, is dead. I'm, I'm not a good guitarist, and I don't consider myself a guitar comic. I do. I play sometimes a guitar. I like playing music at home, but you're gonna tell me to put down the guitar. I like maybe I write jokes while at home while I play guitar. You yeah. have no idea why I would play guitar. Buddy. If I want to play accordion in my house, don't worry about it. You know, I have. I get so I have upset a plan at that here. Sort of you know, stuff. I'm working on my stuff. I imagine if you're like me. That's an offensive thing. It's almost like a religious level of offense to be like, why are you going to tell me to stop playing the guitar? Yeah, I remember I I like drawing and painting. I would never argue that I'm a great artist by any means. Right. But I like the activity of doing it. Yeah. And when I realized through stand-up comedy that you can get better at something without ever getting good at it... <laughs> That was really liberating because it's all relative. You can get better, but it doesn't mean in absolute terms you're ever going to be good or great at it. Yeah. But if you are enjoying the feeling of progress and getting better, maybe you look up one day and you're great at it. Yeah. But if you don't, then that's fine if you go about it more for process. Again, people have to make a living. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, so just go do art for art's sake. Yeah. But I guess more in like your choices where you have freedom and time and you want to be a creative person. I don't know. To me, it's just like a fun kind of solo exploration. <laughs> so it's always funny to me if, if when people told me, like, what are you painting for? Or <laughs> you can't just paint. You have to go to school for that. I'm like, who the fuck are you? What, it, what, what are you putting on me here? Do you think right. I'm suddenly saying now I'm a painter? Or right. maybe I just actually don't think about things that bother me while I'm painting. Maybe right. it's like a way to escape my head for an hour. It's a bubble. It doesn't matter. It's just the, the painting's just the end of an activity, you know? Yeah, people get upset when... I I, th- I think that's a certain level of people being threatened, being like, what do you what do you paint? Maybe I have a paint and I have to do... I know, it's like... <laughs> I got paintings. If there's one thing the show taught me, it was like... Um, what I thought was... I'm talking about the sketch show, the Comedy, the Comedy Central yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought like, oh... I want to put as much out there as I can. I'm going to try really hard in this show and, and 
work hard to make it a unique, strong show. But I, a lot of it was a misfire because it was like people take it as like, oh, look what I can do. Like, oh, here's my drawings and here's my little piano. Oh, that's interesting. And I never thought of it that way, but it was a really good learning experience to be like, hmm. You kind of have to careful. factor in art. I know what you mean. I yeah. Because I was watching the taping of the show. I think I saw I was in the forest or I was in the trees and then I also saw the forest when yeah. I watched it so I understand that people might be like I don't know if threatens the right word but they're just kind of no. like who's this guy he's, now he's got the guitar do yeah. one thing yeah I don't think it's threatened I think it's more like Jesus give it a break guy you know like yeah. how many things you got and well, for that, me that's... I'm in it thinking oh yeah like let me learn how to do this great great cool That's this is a, another option so if the show keeps going then here's a form I can use and then here's that but it goes back to that letting a joke be what it is so if you yeah. have the number three and you're going to turn that into a cleavage yeah. or whatever uh, which you did with drawing I think you were just letting a joke be a joke but I could also see somebody being at home being like well this guy does everything yeah I, I, yeah I guess so for that's, me I don't know why you that's know, my it's funny voice. Yeah, that's where I'm from, so that's good. Cool. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, the good thing was I stopped Googling myself. I'm coming on two years now. That's great. I never again did it. Do you look at your at replies? No. I stopped doing that too. And yeah. Thank God. Yeah. What happened was I had not Googled, then I signed up for Twitter, and that was like a cheater way of kind of like checking up on myself man i did the so same i stopped thing. doing that you stopped doing i stopped googling i turned off my google alert and then i started tweeting and now i read my tw- uh twitters uh, i just stopped uh, maybe three weeks ago i stopped with the at reply stuff because some of them are nice some of them are good some of them are somebody wants you to tweet about like a, a food bank or something and i'm like this is nice it's nice to be involved it's just an exit man it is an exit and it is taking me off the path and like every once in a while one of them will just be like you're not funny. You're creeping me out, or so. And I'm just like, it's it's offensive to me. So hurtful. How much I'll be hurt by something that somebody says. It's so stupid. Yeah, I've been there too. Well, good for you. Well, we'll see how long it can last. When the new it's social a- media device. I was going to do another story about a. Um, it says slightly in the future, but a, they figure out a way to do social media that can just broadcast from your subconscious. Like you don't even have to do anything. Have you you s- sign up for the service. Have you seen Transcendent Man? No, is that what it is? Oh, you'd love it. No, 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 no. Transcendent Man, you got to watch it because it's talk, you, when you're talking about evolution, and this keeps coming up in the podcast, but that's about how like machines are going to take us to the next level of mm. uh, evolution, and we're going to have micro robots that clean our arteries, and then we're going to back up our brains. And the way that we kind of like, how did we ever live without cell phones? We'll be like, how did we ever live without backing up our brain? What if something happens? I need to re-upload my brain to my brain. And uh, the thing that made me think of that was... Uh, at some point, the sharing will just be seamless. Privacy mm. will be completely gone. Yeah. And I'll have complete access, all of humanity will have complete access to everybody <laughs> and just uh, look at each other's thoughts and just kind of like endlessly explore yeah. a never ending, Googleable uh, universe. I hope I'm dead before that. If you Which do, it, you'll never be. die. <laughs> 2026, they say. You can make it. Oh, great. <laughs> my friend that told me about it who smokes i was like you should just quit till 2026 because then they'll have the robots to clean your artery. so did they have two comics on so far one wow all right one's on right now it's a long show you're number four that's a pretty cush spot yeah do you want to know the other topics yeah you were in analyze that that's yes. weird yeah were you in a my scene first, with de niro yes my first acting thing ever was just in analyze that with Robert De Niro? With Robert De Niro. I never had an acting class and never did a scene with anybody <laughs> in my life. 
or anything. I never had a scene partner. And I went to audition and then they said, you got the part. <laughs> Shut up. Directed by Harold Ramis and in a scene with De Niro. It was crazy. Not that I've done a lot of parts, but I've done seven maybe. That was one of seven. No, that's but, that's a yeah. lot of parts. But what what was what was that like? That was cool. That was uh you know, weird and uh I I thought he would obviously not talk to me or anything, but he was pretty friendly. Yeah. And we did the scene a few times and then <laughs> and I've told the story before somewhere, I don't know, but the scene was just supposed to be me trying to get him out of his trailer in the movie. He's on like a Soprano show. Uh-huh. So he has a trailer in the movie. So I'm trying to get him out of the trailer to tell him, hey, they want to go see you in makeup. But he's already running away because some guy who's going to try to kill him is on the way or something. Uh-huh. So he's wants to get out of there, but I'm trying to get him to go to the makeup trailer. So it's two lines I have. And I'm saying, Mr. Vitti, something like that. Mr. Bella wants to see you in the makeup trailer. He's like, oh, tell him I'm busy. And then I say... But he says it's important. And then he just gives me a stack of money and then just runs away. That was it. <laughs> and we did it a few times and it was fine. And then Harold Ramis said, cut. He called us over. He goes, you know what? I want to change the scene a little bit. Dimitri, you go into the trailer. And when you go inside, Bob, I want you to pull your gun out on Dimitri. So, Dimitri, you respond to the gun and then give your lines. Uh, so, De Niro's like, yeah, okay. I walk away. Shit. I could do what I auditioned for. Like, you're going to make me respond to De Niro pulling a gun out. So we did it. Action. So we go. First take. Do it again. Do it again. I do it like four or five times. It's not working. And then Harold Ramis pulls us aside. The director pulls us aside. So I'm standing with Harold Ramis and De Niro. And they're, Harold Ramis is really nice. And he says... He's being very diplomatic, and he goes, first he goes, Dimitri, you know, I need you to respond to the gun. I need you to react to the gun. You're just coming in and reacting. Before you, like, even see the gun, your hands are already up. It's like, I need you to see the gun and react to it. And then here's where he's really diplomatic. He goes to De Niro. He says, are you showing him the gun so he can react to it? Uh, (laughs) Bob's like, "Uh, yeah, Bob. Robert De Niro's like, yeah, yeah, showing him the gun. And then... The hero goes, maybe should we put real bullets in the gun? <laughs> and the thing was, he had to keep doing the takes. De Niro had to keep doing the takes because he had to walk into the shot. Yeah. So normally we could have a stand-in maybe, I guess, or someone right. off camera. They could just shoot me as a single. But the way they shot it, he had to walk through the take towards me. So this uh, this idiot, me, it, they want to break for lunch. And De Niro has to keep redoing the scene because I can't. So first, I mean, I never acted in my life. It was so stressful. Uh, but then I got it after that. Like we did two more takes and then oh, I got it and I got to stay in the movie. It was cool. It was a thrill though. That exciting. is amazing. I'm glad. I- yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of thought I, it might help to put bullets in the gun. Yeah. That would have so. helped me. God in heaven. That's a funny story. Well, I I don't know what to close on. Hmm. Your mom was a nutritionist. Yeah, that's good. Uh, divorced. We got three weird things about me in there. Yeah, definitely. Greek Orthodox, wrote for Conan, work ethic. The only, the last thing I was going to say was, one, the other thing I talked to TJ about was the spring sponge theory. And I, this is a stupid theory of mine, uh, that I think comedians are both springs and sponges, meaning a spring, they create their own fresh water, and a sponge, meaning they take from other people. Mm. And I know you like art and stuff, and uh, Picasso said that great artists steal yeah. that sort of stuff. I very blatantly was inspired by Brian Regan, mm. Steve Martin, Seinfeld, that sort of stuff. And you uh, certainly earlier in your career 
got a lot of Hedberg and Stephen Wright. Mm-hmm. And I know the, the Ang Lee story. He was yeah, trying to break, break you right, down. Yeah, to, Martin you, Lawrence, I, I get a lot too. Just because of the Martin. Just because my name. I was inspired by him Dimitri for my name. Dimitri Martin Lawrence. One time I did a show and uh, somebody came up to me after the show and said, there's a booker in San Francisco. First time I saw him, he said, I like your stuff. You know, you're like Mitch Hedberg and... But also like Zach, because you have a guitar and you look like Arj Barker. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, that's the most. That's a triple derivative. Uh, uh, <laughs> the subtle insult. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I got I got Hedberg for a while, which you know I take as a compliment because I think Mitch Hedberg was a really gifted, special comedian, and uh, and I love Stephen Wright, and I always tell people, I mean, Stephen Wright's my my influence. But if sure. anyone's ever asked me, it's I just I'm an honest person. I always say, yeah, I love Stephen Wright. That's why. Um, I like jokes probably, right. and I like Gary Larson a lot too. I love Gary Larson. Yeah, those are those are two biggies for me. That was a big influence. Talk yeah. about seventh eighth grade before your brain's fully developed. That stuff getting in there, yeah, but also you know Cosby and Peter Sellers. Those are a big part of my childhood as, as comedy mm-hmm. entities. Mm-hmm. Me too. And um, then later discovering Woody Allen and Bob Newhart, Richard Woody, Pryor. Woody Allen has great one liners. Yeah, because oh. even though I like telling one liners, I like other stuff too. Like. Richard Pryor is sure. pretty amazing. Well, I know you get this all the time, but what I, the reason I brought it up was what I think you've done successfully. And in order to be a, a one-liner or, or a joke-telling comedian, you need to sell yourself the idea of who you are just as much as like Louis has to do. Yeah. Like Louis, Louis being him. But I, I've, I've seen one-liner guys that are coming up now, like open mic kind of level, just breaking in. And it feels like they're reading their tweets. When mm-hmm. I watch Hedberg, and I, I had the privilege of seeing him before he passed, there's a guy. Yeah. I get him completely, even though he's just talking about whatever travel to yeah. It doesn't matter. I was like, I'm not listening to one-liners. I'm listening to this guy tell one-liners. Of course, Stephen Wright was such a persona in that way. And I, this is a compliment, not to make it weird, but that's the way the show is. You're, it's you. It's Thanks. you. It's lightning bolts. It's, it's the sh- it, I, you know, I don't mean you know to speak funny. It's just like, that's why it works. I do... When I go on the road, I do 90 minutes. Sometimes I've done two hours, which I don't think is, I've learned is not the smart thing to do usually. Too long? Yeah, I think it's too long. People want to go to the bathroom. It's like, it's, it's usually in a theater and it's a nice place to be. Right. But I don't know. It just seems kind of past diminishing returns. I try to do as much time as I can improvised at the top of the show. That's so funny because it's, it's written down here. I think you'll say wanting to improv more. Limitations of one linery. I wrote down here. Yeah, I because you I, told me that at the Boston, you're like, I'm trying to improvise. Yeah, as much so as I, I can. just try to. I'm I'm obsessed with the difference between making comedy and presenting comedy. Yeah, um, they can both be fine, and when they're the kind of together mixed, it seems like a really good show. So I like I write jokes all the time. I I don't know why, but I love one liners. That's what I do. Yeah, when I'm alone, my notebook is filled with just single panel drawings and one liners. Yeah. But I realize it's also fun to connect with an audience and I'm probably, I am a very different person than Stephen Wright or Mitch Hemberg or Zach. That's what makes it a completely or, different thing. Or Brian Kiley, a lot of one-line comics. You know, they're all different people. and Or Mintz. Or Dan Mintz, yeah. So, um, you know, it's just a quest to really put on the best show you can, I guess. Be yeah. authentic and be yourself as much as you can. The part of me that is myself, that's been myself the whole time is that I do one-liners, but... The other part of me is, you know, the part of me that like to hang out with my friends and joke around in the dining hall and right. stuff. You know, if I could get that kind of a relationship with the audience, then I feel like I could improvise for 45 minutes. Right. 
but it takes a while uh, to get there, you know. And that feels so good. Yeah. I, I think that I, I honestly wanted to frame that question to you in a different way, only to say that it's the persona that makes it work because me with your jokes or anybody else with your jokes, it's not going to fly. Yeah, I think that's true. At all. And then also, I have seen you do crowd work. I've seen you uh, create as opposed to present. Yeah. And I think that's a delight. What's, what's, what's really genius and fun is that you've gotten to a place where people just want to see you present. Like people want to hear you tell the statue joke, like one of their favorite songs. Yeah. And Mulaney, who opens for you occasionally, told me that when you do an encore or whatever and you take requests, he told me, I don't know if this is true, but he told me that your posture would kind of change as if you were almost like a robot because they're yelling out the jokes and then you would do them yeah. almost in this like kind of physical protest. Not, th- not that you're mad at it, but like just kind of like a, I'll do it, but I want you to know that I'm just kind of allowing you to put quarters in me. Yeah, that's kind of a navigation there for me where – you know, I'm not some giant act. I can see if you're Brian Regan or Jerry Seinfeld, if you're Bill Cosby, it makes sense. Uh, you're a legend. You're legendary. Yeah. And some of the guys are legends. People are coming to see you and they're paying a lot of money, usually in these big rooms. And it's probably like a band where you might even bring a different generation. You might bring a child or a grandchild. Right. And say, I hope I want him to do the dentist bit. You yeah. Know, this meant a lot to me. There's a different kind of sharing going on. Someday it'd be great to be and that level, one of those guys that yeah. have been around long enough, have enough material and have been become good at it, good enough at it where I'm at. Yeah. If I go to a college and they want, I do, it. I do a headlining set of all new material. Yeah. But what I found was if I did no old jokes, then after the show, when I did the meet and greet, then students sometimes would say, uh, you didn't do the you know, <laughs> swimming joke. You didn't do the cactus joke or whatever. I wanted my friend to hear. Right. So that's what I started to, for five minutes, maybe seven minutes at the end of the show, say, hey, if you guys want to hear any old jokes, just call them out. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe what Melanie observed, maybe one night I was tired or something, but I don't usually resent oh, it I too much. Oh, I thought it was funny. I thought yeah, it was to fun. me it's fine. It's like I think it was yeah. at a pitch that only a comedian would have yeah. noticed. When I saw Brian Regan in Boston, I now won't watch Brian Regan because he'll just infect me. Uh, someone brought a peanut butter and jelly in the same jar and just so, put it on the stage so the bit, yeah. and he picked it up and I remember he was like, oh, somebody brought this. Okay, anyway. As if he wasn't going to do funny. the bit. It was so fucking That's great. Funny. And then he did it. The times that people have yelled out requests for me is one of the biggest thrills of my life. When I saw Hedberg and people yelled out requests, he did the bit, no one laughed and he went, you requested it, laugh, fucker. And it was one of the best moments. It was one of the biggest laughs of the show. That's funny. You know, the best... That's really funny. The, the best thing I learned was if I if I'm going to go down the road of trying to do older jokes, if I had the time and energy and I've been able to do it with some of them, they request a joke and you do it, but you have a new ending. Yeah, just have a new tag because then the whole joke itself is just a setup. Yeah, because then you actually get a real laugh. Because then there's, it, you found a way to find another surprise in the show. God, it's hard, but if you can do it, and that's yeah. what, that's what I do with the older jokes people tend to ask for the same one. So if I'm diligent, yeah, I just go back into the joke and I make it a new joke. I totally get that. So you kind of have the best of both in that situation. Yeah. I'm kind of a Dane Cook uh, defender in some ways. And Dane Cook's when he, he used to do sets and then crowds would follow him from one show and go to the next show and watch him again. And he'd sometimes do the same material, but then the game, if you will, becomes like, let's say you're talking about like a movie you hate and you change the movie, you change the person, you change the thing you say, and it becomes this kind of interactive thing that the crowd is aware mm. that you're giving them something new. And I try and do that too. That's so cool. I, I think that keeps it fresh for you and fresh for them. Yeah. 
The other thing, Isaac Woody always, I think I already said this on the podcast, never knows what he's opening with, and that keeps him fresh. I, I think that's such a great little that's cool. cheat. Yeah. The White Stripes also say, uh, uh, not that I know the White Stripes, but Jack White says when he goes on, they don't know what they're going to open with, which is great because there's two of them. Yeah. That's so good. he's just going to start playing something and she that's has fun. to come in. Yeah. I, I only told you that at comic to comic just to be like, these are little cheats I've found to keep it fresh. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I love stuff like that. I think that's super fun. Cool. Well, I, I think this is it, man. Yeah. You got to get on stage. Cool, this, man. This Thanks. is so much fun. Thanks, Thank you Pete. for doing it. I, I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good to talk Thanks. to you. Yeah, you know, one of our longest conversations. We got to record it. I know, right? We kept it crispy. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Toodles. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 